Listen to these, these couple verses from Colossians chapter 1. It says, May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now get this verse. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How cool is it to think that Jesus the King, he was a king on a mission, right? He didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he came to accomplish uh, what that verse is talking about, that the King came to transfer us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Uh, So let's just uh, sing one more song here, thinking about Jesus as, as our King and and uh, how we long to see him again. It's a great time of the year. We're glad that you're with us this morning. I would invite you to turn your attention to the Lord as I open in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're privileged to be here, and I just ask that you, Holy Spirit, would work. I know that in my own heart I need you to uh, settle my thoughts and my mind and help us all just to focus on the realities and the truths that are contained in this passage. We thank you uh, that you have done so much for us. I pray that you would open your word to us, that we would continue to worship you in spirit and in truth that you would take the things that we learn, that you would wash over our hearts and our souls, that you would rivet these things to our lives and that they would bring about the transformation and the change uh, that you alone can cause. For your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, there was a sports announcer that made a little description, a little extra color commentary on a player. I want you to listen to the commentary that he made. J.K. Dobbins' mom, Maya, became pregnant when she was 18 years old. She went to the doctor because she was thinking about aborting the baby, but changed her mind. That baby turned out to be that young man. J.K. Dobbins, who she calls her miracle baby. J.K. Dobbins, a star running back for Ohio State. His mother was, uh, was pregnant with him out of wedlock. A miracle baby, she says. She decided to keep the baby. This morning, we're going to be talking about another miracle baby. Similar circumstances, really. Uh, The miracle baby we're going to talk about was also conceived in a kind of a way that uh, left the mother scorned by her peers, left her in a situation that was awkward and unusual, something that she shouldn't have uh, had to deal with from a human standpoint, but she did, and it was really difficult for her. And she was mocked and ridiculed, much, I'm sure, like J.K.'s mom, It was awkward, and yet she gave birth to a son, and we call him Jesus. And why is it that this Jesus is a miracle baby, a miracle child? Well, the text we're going to be looking at this morning in the Gospel of John, beginning with verse 1 in chapter 1 and on through verse 13, gives us an explanation of why this Jesus is a miracle child. The text tells us that this baby in Bethlehem was born. It was God's son sent into the world, which is kind of an odd way of looking at things, but he sent his son into the world as the person Jesus, the God-man. And this God-man came to earth so that he might bring us to God. That's why he came. 
And we learn from this text that he also was the full revelation of his father. The exact representation, the author of Hebrews says. The miracle of Christ's birth was it God's word, quote unquote, was sent into the world. God spoke into the world through the sending of his son. And we're going to look at four descriptions in these verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 13 of John, that confirm that God sent his divine son into the world as Jesus, our Savior. I invite you to turn in the Bible, if you would, to John chapter 1. Sorry, Alan, I'm starting in John here, not Matthew. We'll get to Matthew next week, but we're in in John this morning. I'll read the first 13 verses if you want to follow along with me. If you have your device or underneath of the seat in front of you, there is a a Bible and the page number is in the bulletin. If you want to follow along with me, I'm going to read John chapter 1, 1 through 13. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light that there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The first description we see of the word that's mentioned in verse 1, is that we see him as the eternal son. John's introduction, which is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is a compelling explanation of God's unique communication, of his plan of salvation, his self-revelation. And this salvation comes through his self-revelation. In the person of Jesus. Now, the miracle of God's Son, the Word, and when I say this, and I wanted to be very careful to articulate this, when I say that the miracle of God's Son, who is is the Word here, the Word assumed humanity. God the Word, God's Son, the Word, assumed humanity without abandoning His deity in coming to earth as the person of Jesus Christ. Fully God. Fully man. To provide salvation. And this is a fact that John articulates in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And then he explicates, explains, in the rest of his gospel. So that his purpose in John 20, 31, of all that he's written about this person, the Word, is this. That you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that believing you might have life in his name. That's the Gospel of John. That this Word, who became flesh, the Son of God, is Jesus. And this Jesus, and all that he did, is written these things so that you might believe that he is the Son of God and believing you might have life in his name. He sought to to present the person and the work of Jesus in a way that would convince even the worst of skeptics that God is really God and that he really did send his Son. He really did provide a way for fallen men to be redeemed and reconciled and brought back into relationship with a a living God and that those of us who believe this and trust this would be confirmed that, yes, this is not a faith that is in vain. And so, 
we see, first of all, the qualities that affirm that he is the eternal son. First of all, in verse 1, we see that the son is preexistent. Notice the text says, in the beginning. Now, where have we heard that before? In the beginning. Uh, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. In the beginning here, John 1.1. Well, what do you mean in the beginning? Well, we don't know what the beginning is. Is it the beginning of creation, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of time? It doesn't matter because prior to the beginning was the Word. The Word, who in this prologue is a reference to the Son of God. Interesting to me is that the Word in the Greek mentality, which is very popular and very prominent in the culture in which John wrote. To the Greeks, the word was the the ruling principle of the universe, God himself. So John uses the very word they thought represented God to say, well, yeah, that's right. You got it right. You just don't know who he is. This word, the divine son, the who became flesh, human, and he dwelled among us. This is the historical person, Jesus. That's what he's saying. He was already in existence in the beginning. So he predates the beginning of time, the beginning of history, the beginning of creation. He was there. So if he was there, then nothing came before him. And we see this in Colossians chapter 1. The, uh, Paul affirms it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's before all things. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This is John writing in another place about the same person, Jesus, the incarnate word of God. He was in the beginning. You see, one reason this is important is because if you have a beginning, then something caused you. And since God the Son has no beginning, nothing caused Him. He is the causer, not the caused. Uh, Some of you are familiar with the Marvel Avengers uh, movies and things like that. All of these Avengers have a cause. They're caused beings. The Son of God is not a caused being. He's the causer of beings. God the Word, the pre-incarnate Christ, is without cause. The Word, God's powerful self-manifestation, tangibly expresses God Himself in the person of Jesus. See, what the Greeks thought about theoretically, Word, the ruling principle, Jesus is tangibly God in the flesh. He's not only self-existent, the text goes on to say that he's coexistent. The son is coexistent. And the Greek language is absolutely explicit here. Notice the text says, in the beginning was the word. Then he says, and the word was with God. The pre-incarnate son was with God. Well, were you with God? Anybody at Thanksgiving? If you were with them, then that means there was someone else there. You were with them. So when it says that he was with God, it means that he was in relationship with God, but distinct from God. Then the text says, and the word was God. Uh Uh-oh. Wait a minute, he was with God, but he was God. He was with God in the sense that he was in relationship with God, distinct from God, but he was God in the sense that he is the identical essence of God. That is explicitly articulated in the text. And some people, I've, I've argued with Jehovah's Witnesses, they say, well, no, he was a God. No, 
The Greek has ways of expressing that he was a God. No, he was not a God. He was God. He was equal in his essence. Co-equal, co-eternal with the Father. See, Jesus is not the full manifestation of the Godhead. He's one representation within the Godhead. Now, it's a difficult thing to understand. We can't always wrap our brains around it. The Son is distinct from but co-equal with the Father. And this is attested. If you go back to Psalm uh, verse 45, chapter 45, verse 6, the God says of the king that the king is God. And the king there is the Messiah. And what's attested there is also ascribed here, and Jesus affirms it. Where does Jesus say, I am God? Well, lots of there are places, but in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. He's God. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is God. He is the exact representation of his nature, the text says, in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, there's always this debate, and I think I maybe referred to this before, so you... Uh, if you've been here before and I've done this, just please indulge me, okay? So it's kind of my mind goes to the same place sometimes. But there's always this debate about whether who's the greatest. Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James, okay? So who is the greatest basketball player of all time, Michael or LeBron? Well, let's just, see, let's just assume, uh, which I don't assume, that they had equal and have equal ability, okay, in athletics, well, they are equal maybe in their ability, but they are distinct in their beings. God the Father is God the Father. God the Son is God the Son. He is distinct in his being, but he is equal in his essence with the Father. And there's no analogy, no illustration that is going to even come close to trying to explain this idea of one God in three persons. But we see in the text of John, at least the Bible tells us that there is something going on here. That the Godhead is not just represented by one God the Father, but God the Son as well. And yet you can say, well, you can say whatever you want. I mean, I, mean, I can say I'm the greatest basketball player of all time. A claim without support is completely spurious. Anybody can claim anything. Yeah, in fact, in the world we live in, a lot of people are claiming a lot of things that really aren't true. So you have to prove it. Well, what proves it? I liked what Barrett says in his commentary. The remainder of John's gospel corroborates his claims of, of Christ's deity. Here's what Barrett says. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this is not true, then the entire gospel is blasphemous. So you test the statement by the facts. We read the rest of the gospel. Now verse 2 says, he was in the beginning with God. All it, do, it does is just a corroboration of what he's just said. He, the Son, the Word, was with God in the beginning. He was divine in his essence. He was in the beginning and distinct in his person. He was with God. Just punctuates it. Now we see not only is he self-existent, not only is he co-existent, but he is the creator as well. Further evidence of his deity that is embodied in this humanity. Verse 3. All things came into being by him. By whom? The Word. The Son of God. Who became flesh in the person of Jesus. So when we think about the baby in a manger, the Christ of the cradle is the creator. Kind of blows your categories, maybe. But this is affirmed throughout the scriptures and attested in many places. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. He is the image, speaking of Christ, of the invisible God. Well, There we go. There's this. Jesus is God. The firstborn of creation. Firstborn means the preeminent one. Not that he was first in order. He was the preeminent. For by him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or powers or principalities, all things are created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things exist. I went on a little bit further, okay. But he's the creator of it all. He made the world. Through him the world was made. God the Son is not simply an adorable human child like this adorable human child. You got that picture, Adam? Yeah, like that adorable human child. Jesus is not simply an adorable human child like my grandson. He is an amazing, almighty, holy creator. He is the creator of the universe. And what's amazing is, what was God doing? You can go away from that. We don't need to (laughs) dwell there. Um, What was... God doing. Notice in Genesis it says, in the beginning, God created. And when God created, how did he create? He spoke things into being. And what John is saying is that Jesus was speaking in creation. So that this text in Genesis or John 1:3 talks about in similar ways that in the beginning there was darkness, right? And, and so he spoke into the darkness. He spoke light into the darkness. The, the, the first way that God spoke, he spoke powerfully to us in creation. But you know, his creation speaks powerfully, but it speaks incompletely. Because it, doesn't, it only condemns. It only gives us enough evidence to know that the God is a reality, but not enough to bring us into relationship with God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. From the, for from the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen, so that they are without excuse that we can be condemned by what is created because we realize that God exists, but it is not enough to bring us into relationship with God. Our daughter, Janae, has a apparel shop and she's been working on there was a a gal who had sewn a bunch of garments out of some really nice fabric and this lady passed away a long time ago so her family took these garments and they gave them to my daughter and they said would you make for us from these garments a a number of of purses because we'd like all of the daughters granddaughters and great-granddaughters to receive something of a memento of their patriarch their matriarch And so she's creating, communicating the reality of someone who existed long ago to give to these children as a memory of that person, but in no way does it cause or create a relationship with that person. When God spoke to us through his son in the creation, he spoke in a way that spoke of the reality of God, but it didn't be able to bring us into relationship with God. So that's why God gave through this general revelation the hints of God and then through his special revelation, the word of God, he spoke particularly through that word. And then finally we see here, he spoke personally through the word, Jesus, the word of God, spoken to us who became human flesh. And this Jesus is the one who speaks to us with a passion, a love, and a concern, and the power to bring about our relationship with God himself. He is the eternal son. He is the revealed son. Two facts reveal his excellencies. If you begin with me in verse 4, the meaning of this revelation, what does it mean that he was revealed? It says, in him was life. Think about that. In him was life. Self-existent. He's not only... He, he, he created himself. No, he didn't create. He's always been. He's here. He has life in himself. He is the... It's beyond our comprehension. Sovereignly self-existent. He is also... So then, he's the source of life in creation. 
He is also the source of life in new creation, in our salvation. Jesus says in John 11, I am the resurrection, the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will what? Never die. John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is not only the source of our earthly life, he is the source of our eternal life. It says that he is the one who delivers us from the penalty and the power of sin. He's able to do that through his work. Ah, behold, John says in John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, what was a lamb? A lamb in the Old Testament sacrificial system was that which they sacrificed, and the blood of the lamb would pay for the sins of the the people or cover the sins of the people for a time. But a lamb was an insufficient sacrifice because it wasn't a complete substitute. But the person of Jesus, when God inhabited that human body in the person of Jesus, he was able to become the absolute Sufficient sacrifice for sins of mankind because he was human. And because he was God, he was perfect. The perfect sinless sacrifice was able to pay for the sins of mankind. You see, he's able to deliver what he promises. Uh, I know a, a couple that when they were younger, they, 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 they made an investment. And it's not me. Uh, so they, they made an investment, and they, they were promised on this property that there would be benefits and all kinds of advantages and all kinds of stuff, and it never materialized. Why? Because the people making the promise couldn't come through. But Jesus has made a promise, and he is the life. He's the life. He's the power to bring life, and he is the spotless Lamb of God. He is the He says, in him was life, and the life was what? The light of men. What does that mean? It means that he was perfect. He was unblemished in his character. His perfection as deity and his substitutionary death as humanity enabled him to provide for the forgiveness of our sins. What does it mean, light? 1 John 1.5 says, In him is no, no darkness at all. No darkness, no sin, no blemishes, no, no, no nothing bad, okay? Uh, can some of you, like, who here wear, likes wearing white? You know, is white in your color wheel? You know? White's in my color wheel, okay? If you don't know what that is, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a fashion term. My daughter's a fashion person, so I know what a color wheel is, okay? White's in my color wheel, because I'm a winter, okay? So uh, winter colors. But I can't wear white. I can't do white, because, I mean, I, I can't even get out of the house with something white on. It's got smudges and dirt, all running up against something. It's just trashed by the time I get out the door. Jesus is absolutely pure. No blemish, no spot, no trace of anything wrong. And it is, as the writer of 1 Peter Peter says, that he is the unblemished, the precious blood of a lamb, unblemished or spotless, the blood of Christ. That's how we are purchased. That's how we are bought out of. That's how we were delivered from the punishment of our sin was because the sinless Son of God sacrificed Himself on the cross as a human and divine being at once. Or purchase. Verse 5 just continues the idea. It says, and the light shines in the darkness. The sun's work. Isn't it interesting? The, the darkness and light, the creation, all this stuff. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, what? Darkness covered the earth. And God spoke light into being. So with that in view then we have an additional understanding and revelation that Jesus, the Word, who also spoke light into being back in Genesis, now is the the light, the absolute perfection, 
that shines in the darkness, which is a representation of sin. And so that he exposes our sin. And he also illumines the path to new life. And you know, that's the problem. He says he shines in the darkness. He illumines our rebellion and invites our reconciliation. And the text says in verse 5, and the darkness didn't get it. It didn't comprehend it. Well, actually, some versions translated, I think, a little more accurately, didn't overcome it. Didn't suppress it. Because the darkness of sin cannot suppress the light of God. Now, they tried on the cross, but didn't work. The light shines. I, I like this way. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not. He shines, and he's still shining. In the darkness. The light shines and still shines in the darkness. Now, in our house, uh, we did one thing that I, I like. We put some light switches on that have a little LED light, you know. So in the dark, there's a little light. You can see the light switch or you see kind of where it's at. It doesn't matter how dark it is. When that little LED light is on, boom, you can see the light switch or you can see where it's at. Jesus is the light Come into the darkness, and the darkness, which is normally seen as the absence of light, can't snuff him out. He can't snuff him out. But I tell you what, the world sure tries. And the world did not comprehend him. And the world then and the world now does not like the light shining on the darkness because we don't like to have our sins exposed. We don't like to have the idea that, that we are sinful people and that our sins need to be exposed. Keeping Christ in Christmas is going to be a little scary if you realize that the miracle child came to expose the darkness, not just to be some nice little quiet, calm baby in a manger. But he came to expose our sinfulness. He came to show us our need for a Savior. He came to show us that only through faith in him will we be delivered from sin and brought to new life, which is transformation. It's not just like fire insurance. People say, well, you're one of those Christian people. You just want fire insurance so you don't go to hell. Well, yeah, but it's, that's, that's, that's only half the story. The other half of the story is that I have power. I have a transformation that enables me to live as a child of God. With a whole different perspective and a whole different worldview. A whole different way of relating to people that is redeeming, that is transforming, that is powerful, that is helpful, that is healthy. That the world doesn't know anything about. Jesus in the manger... And I, you know, our culture is, is taking Jesus and we're, we're proselytizing or prostituting Jesus in the sense that we have injected him sometimes. And I'm saying this wholesale, so please listen to me. I, I'm trying to be a little uh, diplomatic. It's hard for me sometimes. But I'm, I'm, the world as a whole is not receiving Jesus as the one who reveals our sin from which we must turn and surrender our lives so that we can live new life and be redeeming people. No, the world wants to see Jesus as helpful in overcoming my addiction or my compulsion so that Jesus becomes useful to me, but really I'm still in control. It's a fine line. Jesus is helpful and he is useful, but ultimately he is not some helpful, useful tool in overcoming a compulsion. He is the absolute solution for our rebellious condition, which results in our addiction and compulsion. So he's not a band-aid on my problem. He's the cure. And only when I surrender fully to him will the cure be applied Notice the manner of his revelation. There's two ways. He shines in the light. The pre-incarnate word came to earth as Jesus, humanly and divine, reflecting through his word and his works, God Almighty. And God's love for a lost people and his perfect holiness. So God is perfectly holy. And we're not. So we deserve his judgment. But God is perfectly loving. 
So he sent his son to make a provision so that in our fallenness we could be redeemed to this God, offering us salvation. Then he shares, John is the one who shares the light. Verse 6, there came a man sent from God. Now notice John's credentials, he's sent from God. And uh, we didn't look at this, we'll look at that maybe a little bit later sometime uh, eventually, but the last prophet in the Bible to John the Baptist was 400 years. John broke the silence. A lot of speaking going on here. God speaks the creation into being. God speaks his word is the speaking voice of God to the world, Jesus. And now John speaks. His identity is John the Baptist. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5. He's the one, the voice of the one, clear the way of the Lord, make straight the way of his paths. Matthew chapter 3 confirms this. And then we see his message in his ministry in chapter 1 verse 7. It says, he came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that all might believe through him. He came to bear witness of the light. Who's the light? He's a testimony. Uh, Some of you, anybody here go to the King and Country concert last year at the State Fair? Or did you hear about it? No. Nobody knows what I'm talking about. Okay. So there was a Christian concert at the State Fair. Okay. Kings and King and Country. Uh, well, before the fair, before the performance, there's all kinds of advertisements, right? They had a bunch of advanced people coming, telling about on the radio, the TV. Everybody's telling about the King and Country's coming to the State Fair. Well, Jesus had an advanced man. And his advanced man was John the Baptist. He came in advance declaring and witnessing about the light who is Christ. And Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is Messiah. The one they knew was coming, and he came declaring as a witness to the light. He was the advanced man. And why did he come? It says in verse 7, he came to bear witness to the light that he might bear witness to the light. End of verse 7 that all might believe through him, that they might believe. And verse 8 simply tells us John's place in it all. He wasn't the light. He's just testifying to the light. He is, this word is the eternal word. He's the revealed word, but then he is the rejected son. Verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Coming into the world speaks of a specific event. The incarnation. The miraculous event in which God's son, the word, became his son in the flesh, human being, Jesus. To dwell among rebellious people. The true light, authentic light, enlightens everyone. Now there's a big conundrum for you. So Jesus came into the world and he enlightens everybody. So everybody's saved? Everybody's redeemed? No. He didn't enlighten everybody in the sense that they were without exception brought into relationship with God. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that the true light Jesus Christ shines on everyone. Exposing our sinful condition and showing that salvation is only possible through faith in him. Whether or not we accept it. Whether or not we recognize it. He's shining. That's what Christmas is about. That's what the Christ of Christmas is about. It is God's light shining to the world. The world knows about Christmas. But what does the world do with Jesus? He's shining in the light. And it says that the light didn't understand him. The Christ of Christmas shines the light on all, whether we see it or not. And the ones in the first century, when then the light came, what did they do? The text says they rejected him. Two <clears throat> realms, he was rejected by the world. Now, what's the world? <clears throat> the world is a realm of human beings and human affairs. Rebelling against God. He came into that world. And the world he created didn't recognize him. I went to my class reunion here last August. Now... I had 30 people in my class, graduating class from high school, 30. There were a couple of dudes there, I'm going, I don't know who they are. 
I mean, I'm old, but I'm not that bad. And I'm like, I had no, I mean, I couldn't, I didn't recognize him. I mean, the one guy was like, whoa, that's not the same dude I graduated from high school with. This just couldn't be. Couldn't recognize him at all. When Jesus, the Son of God, came into the world in human flesh, the world just went, don't know you. Haven't got a clue. I mean, eventually I, I re- recognized who they were. Okay, I, I found out. Who's, who's that guy? You know, so I, oh, yeah, 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 I know him. Well, no, they didn't recognize Jesus. And the world we live in is no less hostile, no less blind to the truth of who Jesus is. Just for example, the world is hostile towards us, and we got to get used to it. And later on in John, uh, Jesus is quoted as saying, if the world hates me, it's going to hate you. So that's a great thing. Sign up for that. Oh, I'm signing up for hate. People hate me because I know Jesus. Well, that's how they treated Jesus. That's going to how they're going to treat his followers. That's how they treat his followers now. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, Salvation Army and FCA just got dropped from the charitable contributions of Chick-fil-A because they are not, they're hostile towards certain groups of people or considered hostile towards certain groups of people who don't hold to a biblical understanding of marriage. And the Salvation Army and FC is not hostile towards anyone. I mean, they, they give all kinds of contributions and care and share, but our world deems them as hostile. And they're going to deem us as hostile too. No. I want you to look at John chapter 7, verse uh, 7. His light, no, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Folks, you know, the, the message of Christianity is not just that everybody's a bad person, wicked, and going to hell. That's part of it. The, that, that's the, the bad news. The good news is Christ of Christmas came to sacrifice his life so that all who believe would be able to be forgiven and no longer suffer the penalty of sin, but also have victory over the power of sin so we could live transformed lives. It's about transformation and a life that is meaningful. Then he was rejected by his own, verse 11. He came to his own, his Jewish people, and they rejected him. In fact, they crucified him. It's horrible. Rejected him. We just don't like being shown our sin. I remember... Uh, it was kind of, I recoiled. Uh, one, one Sunday, it was a long time ago after a service, uh, a mother came to me and she says, can we talk? And so we went into my study and she goes, you know, what you said about my son, I just, I just really find that offensive. I had made some comment about her grown son. It was inappropriate. I, I mean, it wasn't like whacked out. It just made a non-complimentary comment about her son. Well, you know, you don't mess with mama's boy. I mean, it's just, uh, just the mother bear comes up to the, rises to the occasion. And I was wrong. But I'm like, dude, what I said, or lady, I, I, what I said was true. I mean, I'm in my mind. I'm, I'm rationalizing. That's absolutely true. You know, but no, I had to own it. Do you like to own your sin? Do you like to have your, 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 your pride and your selfishness and your sinfulness exposed? No, we don't. But the light, the word, Jesus, exposes it because he is absolute purity. And everything that's not him is exposed as sin. And then he says, that's wrong, but you can go in this direction. If you trust me, you'll be made right. That's the joy. He is the rejected son, but then he is, some don't just reject him, some receive him. He is the redeeming son. And there are three roles of his redemption we see in verses 12 and 13. First of all, he's the provision for our redemption. Verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. It's a stark contrast to the rejection. Those who reject him, he rejects. Those who receive him, he receives See, we deserve his wrath because we're wicked. We deserve it. But Christ is the Lamb of God, the human sacrifice for our sin, 
to take away the sins of the world so I don't own it anymore. I'm free from its penalty. I'm free from its power. And as we've said before, one day in glory we'll be free from its presence. It's a wonderful thing. It takes away the penalty and the power of sin and makes us his children. That's the thing. And I I was thinking about this really late in my preparation. We're his children, which means we get to live as God people. You know, we don't don't walk around as as sinful. We, We live as Jesus people with his heart, with his compassion, growing in it. None of us are perfect, but we're growing in it. And then he is the path of our redemption. You see, if Jesus wasn't a human being, he couldn't die for our sins. If he wasn't God, he wouldn't be perfect. He had to be perfectly human and God at the same time in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins and to be our substitute. He's the plan for redemption. As many as received him, even to those uh, to believe on his name, to receive is to believe. What does it mean to believe? To accept who Jesus is and what Jesus says and what he's done. I'm a wicked, sinful person. I deserve God's judgment. Christ died in my place and through trust and faith in him I can be forgiven and given new life. And then I can rejoice and joyfully live as a forgiven person. That's what it means to believe. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And finally, he is the power of our redemption. Look at verse, uh, the first part of verse 12. But as many as received him, to them what? He gave the right. Now look at the last part of verse 13. It's not of blood, this, this salvation, this spiritual renewal. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of the flesh. It's not of the will of man, but of God. This is kind of John 3, 6 all over. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. To become a child of God is a work of God. It's God's work in us. He gave us the right to become the children of God. It's a spiritual activity, not of human origin, nor of the will of man, but of God. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, God who said light shall shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts, get that? God who said light shall shine out of darkness in general is the one who shone or shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Apart from the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, we're dead in the water. But the Spirit of God quickens us, enlivens us, and opens our eyes to see so that we can believe. It's the work of God. And none of us deserves it. See, the marvelous thing about God is he's like a parent. And I'm a parent. And I love my kids. And I want nothing more than my kids to love me and to be in a close relationship with my kids. But I can't make it happen. The same is true with God. As much as he longs for us to be in in an intimate and close relationship with him, he's not going to make you do it. It's because, uh, as the wise man once said, a man convinced uh, against his will is of the same opinion still. And so God invites us, and I wonder this morning if the eternal, if the revealed, the rejected and redeeming word of God, Jesus, is calling your heart and saying, look, I love you. Yeah, you're messed up. But look, that's why I came. To cover your sin. To redeem you. To bring you back into a relationship with God. And he wants you to be his child. Folks, that's what Christmas is all about. Is to turn from your sin and trust in him and accept what he's done. You know, you have to understand that these are his credentials. You don't have to agree with it, but I'll tell you what. You have to disprove his credentials, and you can't do it if you look at his word and his works. So I'm just going to challenge you. You look at the words and works of Jesus that are corroborated, validated, substantiated, and you, you have to disprove it in order to discredit his claim to be the only savior of the world. What's stopping you from believing? 
Your pride? Eh, I don't know. I gotta, I gotta get some, I'm, I'm afraid. You know, if I do this Jesus thing, I might have to give up some stuff. Yeah, you will. You have to give up your life. <laughs> now, I'm not painting any rosy picture here. You've got to die to yourself. That's what Jesus says. You've got to lay it down. Say, okay, Lord, now I'm yours. I would not be here doing what, I mean, when I was in speech class in high school, the last thing I thought, I don't want to write speeches. I don't want to do this. This is stupid. Number one anxiety-producing thing is getting up in public and speaking to people. But when Jesus gets a hold of your life, you do what God says, not what you say. And I just wonder if the Spirit of God is speaking to your heart and saying, you know what? I know I'm messed up. And I know I deserve judgment. And right now I see that this Christ, who is a miracle child, is God in the flesh, and he came and he died on the cross, and he he gave us the greatest expression of his love for us when he went to the cross. And his body was broken and his blood was shed. And that's, that's what we remember when we break, and break this bread in communion. And we understand that it was for us. And so there, there can be gratitude. Yeah, it's for me. I don't deserve it. It should be contrition. It should be humility. I don't deserve this. And there should be celebration. Look, at, look I, I can be a child of God now and I don't deserve it. It's what he did for me. And I'm just saying, if you're not there this morning, my prayer is that you would just cross the line. You know, just get your white flag out. You can, don't have to wear a white flag. You just wave it. You say, okay, Lord, I'm surrendering. Take me. Take my life. It's yours. Turn from my sin. I trust in you. I invite you to be my Lord and my master. And you come. You break this bread and you say, Lord... I'm not my own anymore. There's a wild ride ahead. I don't know what it's holding, but I'm going to trust you because I believe that you are the Word of God in the flesh who died for my sin to give me life as a child of yours, and you've promised me you'll forgive me and you'll lead me and you'll take me where you want me to be. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that we would be convinced by the word becoming flesh and the evidence throughout the scriptures of the reality of your identity, your deity, and your humanity and accept your sacrifice as the payment we deserve and receive the life you've given to us so that we could be your children and walk now as you want us to walk. As we break this bread, and I invite and pray that anyone who knows Jesus would come forward as they feel led. Welcome to receive this bread as a reminder and as an appreciation for what you've done. And that we would receive it also as a celebration. That we don't deserve what we've got, but we're going to keep living for you, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.